Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today we're going to be talking about climate. And as some of you know, on November 5th at Duke University, I have a debate on climate, on environment with the famous environmentalist Bill McKibben. So a lot of the, the shows leading up to then will be talking about the issues raised by that debate with different experts on the subject. Um, and I want to start off today's show by reading you a couple quotes, actually from the article that led me to challenge McKibben to debate, and it was called Global Warming's Terrifying New Math. And I want you to notice how scary today's climate, today's weather is made to seem. So here, here's the quote. And this is the opening of the article. If the pictures of those towering wildfires in Colorado haven't convinced you or the size of your AC bill this summer, here are some hard numbers about climate change. June broke or tied 3,215 high temperature records across the United States. That followed the warmest May on record for the Northern Hemisphere. And he goes on to say, meteorologists reported that this spring was the warmest ever recorded for our nation. In fact, it crushed the old record by so much that it represented the largest, temp- quote, largest temperature departure from average of any season on record, unquote. And McKibben described our position as a people living on this planet as a, quote, almost but not quite finally hopeless position, unquote. So this seems like scary stuff. Now, you probably know that there are so many different components to the weather and the climate that it's easy to take it out of context and take anything out of context and make it seem like the end of the world. But at the same time, we hear so much stuff that sounds scary. So what we really need is the context. We need the historical context and the scientific context to know how to make sense of the climate and the weather we deal with today and to know whether it is truly getting a lot worse or whether it's being distorted by people who have an ideological predisposition toward thinking that industrial civilization makes things worse, whether it happens to be getting warmer or colder. And on the show to discuss this is Steve Gorham. Now, I... I, got to know of Steve from a book review by a guy named Jay Lair, who was on Power Hour episode four talking about nuclear. And Jay Lair said that climatism was one of the, I think, two best books he had ever reviewed. And Jay has read and reviewed a lot. So I I took that seriously. And I read this book, Climatism, and I found it to be one of the clearest summaries of global warming issues I had ever read, in part because the author was really, really good at laying out the opponent's arguments exactly the way I had heard them, and then explaining very calmly and carefully where those arguments went wrong. It wasn't cherry-picking at all. It gave the full context. And so I was happy when Steve contacted me recently and told me he had a new book called, uh, less formally, The Mad, Mad, Mad World of Climatism, Man-Made and Climate Change Mania. Now, Steve is executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America, which is an independent, non-political association of scientists, engineers, and concerned citizens uh, dedicated to informing the public about the realities of climate science. And he is generally available as a speaker on environment and energy, and his background is in engineering and business. So with that, Steve, welcome to Power Hour. Well, great to join you, Alex. And I've just caught up on a few of your uh, Power Hour sessions. They're terrific. Good education for me. I'll have to look at uh, some more. Well, th- and, uh, thanks, thanks for your kind words about my books. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Um, and I'm actually going to lean down. I had left on, on the floor, sorry if it's sacrilege, my copy of The Mad Mad World of, of Climatism, but you can see it right here, everyone. I'm going to be uh, paging through it as we go through the interview. So, Steve... You have an interesting background in this issue. How did you, because your, your background, you didn't study meteorology in school, right? How did you get interested in this issue? And if people read the books, you've done a lot of research. You seem to have, have read through or read a lot of, say, the IPCC's reports, which are not exactly 
smooth sailing in my book. So how did you get interested? And then how did you just get so involved? Well, I've, I've read books on both sides. And uh, it's really attacking another direction for me. Uh, I was 30 years in the electronics industry, 24 with Motorola, a number of other companies, uh, electrical engineer by trade, and uh, business executive. And uh, having uh, uh, left my last job, um, got an inspiration one morning, said I could write a book, and uh, I'm a good researcher. Looked around a number of topics and started reading. And this uh, issue of man-made climate change just grabbed me. And a guy by the name of John Coleman uh, kind of pushed me over the top on this. He's a meteorologist at uh, KUSI San Diego right now and a major skeptic on the topic. Uh, he was also in Chicago for quite a while, was our meteorologist, and uh, coined the word uh, thorns, the phrase thorns for thunderstorms. And he wrote the foreword for my first book. But uh, so uh, for the last four years or so, I've been reading everything I could. I've written two books on the topic. I'm now out speaking on it. And it's just an astonishing thing. It, it amazes me every day that the world can be caught in this misguided notion that man-made greenhouse gases are a major force in climate change. It really is astonishing. So when in, when in the process did you become convinced of that? Because some people might say, well, four years, that's not that long. You know, these these other guys like Mike Mann and hey, Bill, Bill McKibben has been writing about this since 1989. And how do, you, how do you come to a conclusion so quickly that this is wrong? Well, it took me about three or four months, actually. I was reading books on both sides. I've read all of Al Gore's books. I've read Bill McKibben's books and books by many of the skeptics and many of the uh, proponents of man-made warming. I went to a number of con conferences and met scientists and and decided that uh, that mankind is misguided on this, that that uh, man, that man's contribution to a trace gas in our atmosphere and really our tiny contribution to a trace gas, uh, the idea that that could be causing a catastrophic global warming is incredible. And uh, I read articles every day saying this is this is a, a true situation, but it isn't. So that's uh, I'm, I'm uh, dedicated to fighting against that right now. <laughs> Yeah, I'd recommend for people just, uh, you know, check out the books and, and see what you think, because that's that's what sold me. I'm not to I mean, people can have whatever credentials and some people with good credentials are great and some people are uh, are horrible in terms of their thinking and their knowledge and, and honesty. So, yeah, I, I, was, I was as I said, I was really impressed uh, by climate. Well, you know, uh, people say, uh, you know, I'm just an engineer. People say, well, you're not a scientist. And I say, well. Even an engineer can tell that uh, while the Arctic ice is melting, Antarctic ice is expanding, that it was warmer a thousand years ago than it is today, that man-made's contribution of, to the greenhouse effect is tiny, uh, that polar bears are in no danger, that uh, the temperatures that Bill McKibben complains about during this last year are not abnormal. We've had warmer periods in the United States in the past. So all of these factors, uh, uh, a person with common sense who can read and study the issue can realize um, are incorrect. All right. Well, uh, on that note, let's let's look at the the really big picture first, because I find that very helpful in, in just putting things in perspective. And actually, even before I wanted to go to do a little climate history one on one, but before that, just to make sure we're clear, what what exactly for people who don't think about it, what exactly is the climate, and what is its relationship to the weather? Well, uh, uh, climate is actually a, a uh, a summation of weather, if you will. It's, it's what occurs in, to 30 to 100 or to 200 years, where weather is our everyday, everyday uh, temperature and uh, storm situation and sunlight that changes uh, daily, weekly, and seasonally. And so, unfortunately, it, it, many people today, I think, are fooled by the weather, and they say, gee, we've had a terribly hot day this summer. Must be, there must be, this is abnormal. It must be some effect that is, that is not normal in history. Uh, but in fact, Earth's weather uh, changes drastically all over the world. We have droughts, we have floods, we have uh, forest fires, we have uh, uh, hurricanes. All these things, uh, the, the variation is very wide across the world, and, um, but not, not so different than what the world has seen in history. And so unfortunately, people are taking weather to be evidence that something is out of whack. Well, presumably it could be. If you were getting every location in the world was getting flooded or incinerated every day, you'd, 
you'd have an issue. Yes, that's true. But that doesn't happen. <laughs> All right. So, well, let's, let's let's look at a little climate history 101. And I want to start with, go, um, go forward to the present, but start with the Ice Age. Because I don't think people take seriously that we used to have an Ice Age where there were, you know, a thousand feet of ice above New York. That the, and, and that puts climate change in a bit of perspective. Well, absolutely. I'm in, I'm in Chicago today. Where are you, Alex? Uh, I'm in Southern California. Southern California. Well, uh, Southern California probably wasn't covered by ice, but uh, Chicago, uh, London, uh, New York City, if we go back 20,000 years ago, there were several thousand feet of ice on top of those cities. And temperature swing, swings during the ice ages were 7 to 12 degrees Celsius, uh, very large swings. And um, somehow the polar bears and other animals managed to survive those major changes. Yet we have scientists today saying that the, uh, the one degree uh, Fahrenheit, 1.3 degrees Fahrenheit change we've experienced since the Civil War, or 0.7 degrees Celsius, is abnormal. Uh, really remarkable. That, wait, that wait, that sorry, Steve, what, what do you mean by this? this what, what time period do those swings occur within, if you say 7 to 12 degrees? Well, that's, that's over a, a, a many, many years, of course. Uh, that's over thousands of years that that sort of change would occur when we came out of the last ice age. But um, uh, somehow the recent rise, as they say, one degree in the last 150 years has, has been branded abnormal. But even, beyond, even if, we, if we talk about uh, other temperature changes uh, rather than the ice age, uh, the Earth goes through many temperature cycles. We've had many periods of warming and cooling uh, since the Ice Age ended over in the last 10,000 years. We've had a Roman warm period. Uh, we've had the uh, medieval warm period about 1,000 years ago when the Vikings settled southwest Greenland. Uh, we've had a little ice age about four or 500 years ago when it was about a degree or two colder than it is today. When the Thames River in London froze over in every year, and they had a they held a thing called the Frost Fair, right on the river, they'd build sheds and bring wagons out and have fires, and they'd have this fair every winter in London. Well, you can't do that today. The Thames hasn't frozen solid in over a hundred years, and man-made emissions of CO2 really have nothing to do with this. These are natural cycles that occur. Uh, climate is always changing. Um, so let's say I wanted to go back to, so if you take something such as medieval warm period or, or Roman warm period, what do you think is the right kind of methodology for determining these things? Um, those familiar with climate gate and the hockey stick phenomenon, you'll see if you look at the hockey stick of, of temperatures that it's regarded as like, like that, like there was no medieval warm period. And in fact, there are some emails, I think, saying we need to get rid of the medieval warm period. And, and you were citing more anecdotal evidence of, of, of written records that we actually have of things that people actually live in. So I'm wondering what you think of what, what are the ways in which these things can be determined and what are the advantages of using written records as against, say, ice cores or, or, what, or something else? Right. Well, you're right. Thermometers uh, really only go back about four or five hundred years. And modern thermometer measurements, uh, when they talk about uh, on the temperature record, that's only about 120 years back since thermometer measurements have been, have been kept. So what scientists do is they use proxies for temperature. And proxies are changes uh, in chemical reactions uh, that track temperatures. Uh, some of those things are tree rings, for example or oxygen, uh, the variation in oxygen atoms, oxygen isotopes in ice or in plankton uh, uh, buried in, in seabeds. And they can track temperature in those sorts of ways. Now you refer to the, uh, the hockey stick was a uh, study done by Michael Mann and others uh, that was uh, latched onto by the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change uh, for the United Nations that showed basically flat temperatures for the last thousand years, and then a very sharp ramp up, which was the, the stick of the, the, uh, the blade of the hockey stick in the last um, 100 years or so. And um, the, the problem with the, the man hockey stick is that it refuted hundreds of other studies that, uh, that were based on proxies and based on historical records uh, that showed 
uh, the temperatures did vary, and they varied a lot. And they showed uh, uh, the, the uh, medieval warm period about 1,000 years ago when the Vikings settled southwest Greenland. And they built a colony of 5,000 at a place called Havasi. But then uh, uh, that colony died out about uh, 13, 1400 when we entered the cooler period of the Little Ice Age. Uh, but if you go to a, a, a website called CO2 Science, uh, you will find hundreds of studies that show proxy or historical data that show it was warmer than it was uh, than it is today, a thousand years ago. Uh, yet um, uh, the Mann study, although it was finally discredited, was initially seized on as as evidence that man was warming the planet. Uh, but studies show that's not the case. So as far as that that goes, uh, we've talked a little bit about the range and and the. the range of temperatures, the fact that these fluctuate over time, um, including obviously for non-man-made reasons. What about though the, because ultimately what I care about is the impact on human life. So, and as, so the one question I have is, well, what is the impact of it being cold versus being warm in general on human life? It's assumed that because they assume mankind is changing the climate, they assume that it's bad because it's warm, but that's not at all clear to me that warmer is worse. Well, it's pretty amazing that uh, you're right. Um, uh, no matter what the, the issue is today, uh, the ideology of climatism assumes that anything uh, that is caused by man-made greenhouse gases or are supposedly caused is bad, whether it's warming or not. Uh, our own U.S. government um, has put out studies that say that uh, uh, Man-made climate change is a health hazard in the United States, including warmer temperatures. And they say we're going to have more heat waves. And there's a lot of other things. Uh, but uh, if you look at scientific studies, scientific studies say that more people die during the winter, for example. Uh, the flu seasons in the northern hemisphere are during the winter months from September to April. And in the southern hemisphere, according to the um, World Health Organization, they're during their winter months there. Uh, from May through August. And so many more people die during cold weather. And if we had a net warming of the planet, that would actually be good uh, for people, probably would reduce um, uh, death due to, to uh, temperatures. In and addition, as you say, um, the warmer periods have been great for uh, growing seasons. Uh, the great cathedrals of Europe, uh, many of those were started during the medieval warm period. And um, uh, during the, middle, the uh, Little Ice Age, 1300 to 1800, when we had cooler global temperatures, we had famines, shorter growing seasons, and other problems in Europe. Uh, so the warmer periods are actually better for, for man's civilization. Um, now, as far as CO2, just, as, uh, just even from the perspective of a layman knowing a couple of things about CO2 and, and warmth, you would expect that more CO2 is plant food. I mean, you know that, at least I learned it in school. I don't know if they teach that in school anymore. So CO2 is plant food. And then if it's warmer, presumably that means there will be more evaporation, so it'll be wetter, so you'll have more rainfall. So wouldn't that be good for for plants and avoiding droughts? And yet all we hear about is droughts and and the growing season being thrown out of whack. But the Ice Age, I think, was the worst kind of growing season you could imagine. Well, it's, I, think the, I think the jury's still out on whether we're going to get more rainfall with, with warmer temperatures. But uh, clearly, warmer climates are better for di uh, biodiversity. We have the greatest uh, population of insects and animals and birds in the tropics, and, and less so in the tundras. Warm temperatures are really great for, uh, for the animal kingdom. Um, and in addition, as you say, carbon dioxide is plant food. Uh, uh, amazing world we're, here, we're in here. Uh, plants take in carbon dioxide and uh, for photosynthesis. They emit oxygen as a waste product. And man's industries and mankind and animals use oxygen as an input uh, uh, to our own processes. And we emit carbon dioxide as a waste product. As a matter of fact, we, we take in only a trace of CO2, but we breathe out a hundred times the concentration in the atmosphere with every breath. So, uh, uh, CO2 is a natural sort of thing, great for plants, and it's it's just amazing that uh, the EPA, for example, has declared it a, a pollutant under the Clean Air Act. All right. Well, uh, 
I want to go through a whole bunch of these uh, scare scenarios or ideas that there are problems. And I decided since I'm debating McKibben, I might as well take his his account of them. So and he, he has this book called Earth. Now, it's hard to I don't even know how to pronounce it because it's got two A's in Earth. And the, the idea behind it is that we have created a new and worse planet that we will never recover from. And the question is, how quickly can we roll back industrial civilization to stop damaging it further? Uh, so E-A-A-R-T-H. Now, uh, he fortunately, I mean, I've read the whole book, of course, but he summarizes an amazing number of alleged disasters in just a paragraph or two. So I'm just going to go through a couple words at a time. Uh, but the first one I want to go through, I think, is, is very revealing and interesting. And he describes it as, he describes the old Earth, allegedly, that's somehow changed dramatically, as our cozy, taken-for-granted Earth. And then he calls it a sweet planet. Now, in my opinion, that is not a fair description, given that the average life expectancy on the, quote, sweet planet has been 30 until we industrialized and people were heated to death and froze to death. What do you think of that characterization that we just got a perfect planet and messed it up? Well, it's it's very interesting. Your debate with McKibben is going to be great. I think the problem you're going to have is he says so many false things within a paragraph that you can't you can't hardly refute all of them. But he really does take current events He's one of the people that, that travels around the globe and takes a flood in Pakistan uh, or, or a hurricane or a tropical storm and says, this is abnormal and, and therefore your, your power plant must be causing it or your neighbor must be causing it. You mentioned wildfires in Colorado, for example. If he brings that up, what I would recommend is that you talk about temperatures in Colorado. Now, the state high temperature in Colorado, I don't remember the exact number, but it's something like 116 or 118 Fahrenheit. It was set on two dates, uh, two years, rather, 1954 and 1936. And even though they had wildfires this year, that Mr. McKibben and others say, this must be um, evidence that that trace gas we're putting in the atmosphere is, is causing uh, climate change. Since temperatures were warmer in 1954 and 1936 in Colorado, they must have had worse wildfires back then. And really, if you look back in, in history, if you look at tornadoes, there's no evidence of, according to the National Climatic Data Center, no evidence of increasing level of tornadoes, tropical storms, many other things. So the real key for people to understand is uh, they need to look back in history a little bit, a little bit, and that's what I do in both of my books, and show that current weather and current events are not abnormal. Where do you get good data on the volume of events? So, for example, McKibben says, according to the New York Times, the quote, the last 30 years have yielded four times as many weather-related disasters as the first three quarters of the 20th century combined. Well, and, and you know, um, some of that may be true. One of the problems you have with that data set is many thermometers have only been in existence for the last 30 years. And so we are at a, a, a local warm period. We've had a nice modern warming from the Little Ice Age, and so many records are going to be broken. What I like to take is the state high temperature records, the state high thermometer record. That's the highest temperature ever recorded in a state, and look at those. And I have a map of those in one of the chapters of my books. And if you take a look at the state high temperature record, and this data comes right from the National Climatic Data Center of our U.S. government, uh, they keep, and again, in the book, I talk about how you can get to that site, but we've only set one state high temperature record in the last 15 years. That was South Dakota in 2006. And 70% of the state high temperature records were set prior to 1970. 22 of those state highs were set in the decade of the 1930s. That's the biggest decade where, in terms of state high temperature records. So if you look at the data, it doesn't say, at least from the state high temperature records, that we are seeing, seeing a catastrophic warming. And that's what I would refer people at. Take a look at that past data. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful in temperature. This quote was a little bit more focused on weather-related disasters. So it's saying, on average, four times as many floods, four times as many droughts. Well, again, if you, if you, look, at, if you look at floods and droughts, Again, the National Climatic Data Center 
has uh, charts that you can get. And again, I put those in, uh, not in the second book, but in the first book, Climatism, that shows droughts and floods for the United States for the last 100 years based on the, the Palmer Drought uh, Index. And you see that the worst periods of dryness were in the 1930s and the 1950s. And if you look uh, for periods of wet weather, there were about six periods of wet weather. But uh, from the data, there really is no trend of increasing droughts and floods. And it's not only the United States. Uh, you can go back to Africa. Uh, there were droughts in East Africa that were 20 years long recently. And people said, my God, that was terrible. But uh, uh, data from proxies show that droughts were hundreds of years long for both East and West Africa. Uh, back uh, about 500 years ago. So the current droughts are not, not abnormal in any way. You can go to Southeast Asia and see similar data. Uh, yet people, play, uh, people like McKibben play on the, the fears of citizens. They say, my God, we had a drought. That's got to be abnormal. We never saw it in the past. And that's just flat out incorrect. And I think another aspect to this is that a drought, it's not as if a drought is this is this thing that always has a uniform effect on human life or a flood. If you're in an industrialized country, I mean, heck, Las Vegas is just is a drought, right? Perpetually. And it's, it's yet they can be flourishing. So it's it, technology is what allows us to make a drought not a big deal or something that makes a drought deadly. So if you're looking at the impact of climate on human life, there's no doubt we have the most livable climate in history. And this is the one fact that the people who supposedly care about the climate, they don't care about. So if something happens in Pakistan, a flood, their solution is use less air conditioning, use less oil to build buildings. Whereas the obvious solution would be use technology to make a flood a lot less harmful because you're always going to have floods. Well, absolutely. And, and uh, as you talk many times on your program, the use of energy and low-cost energy is a great modifier of, of the climate effects that we feel every day. Matter of fact, the, the invention that, that probably made, uh, uh, did the most to grow populations in southern U.S. states was the air conditioner. Um, and uh, by the way, you know, the U.S. government and the IPCC say that, uh, that uh, people should be aware of, of premature death from from global warming, but it seems to me, you know, all the people that I know that want to retire, they don't want to retire to uh, Manitoba or Maine <laughs> or Alaska. They want to retire to uh, California, uh, Florida. Don't they know that the IPC and the U.S. government uh, warn against this? <laughs> yeah, uh, Pat Michaels, who's been on the program before, he he points out there's this 2003 heat wave in France, which everyone says, oh, this, this proves that we can't live with the climate. And he points out they had a real shortage of air conditioning, which they... Re they remedied largely, and so they had another heat wave, which no one talked about because not nearly as many people died because they had air conditioning. And he also makes the point that in the South, you have some of the, I forget the cities, but I think Miami, Arizona, you have some of the lowest numbers of heat-related deaths because they're focused on how to use technology to minimize any negative impact if it, when it gets too hot. Right, and cold has always been a bigger killer than heat. If you in my in uh, the mad 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 world, I have a, a study by Phalagus. I talk about that. He took ten countries. He plotted the death rates uh, all the way through the year for these ten nations. And it's clear that uh, in the northern hemisphere winter, uh, there are more deaths, and and in in the south during their winter, there are more deaths. So cold is something that that kills. So as uh, as um, I don't know the name is escaping. Bjorn Lomborg has pointed out, if we do have global warming, we'll have uh, millions of pe less people die than otherwise from temperature-related deaths. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure how to wrap my mind around this, but there seems to be this, the, the, the trick that's played in people's mind is something like, okay, let's say we've had uh, some hot weather. Well, it's the summer in Southern California, so go figure. But, you know, it's, it can be annoying. I need to turn up my air conditioner now. Thankfully, I have an air conditioner, but uh, going outside during the middle of the day isn't always as pleasant. And I think what happens is people feel that they experience the heat and then they're told it's going to get way hotter. And they think, oh, God, it's going to be. So they, they see they take their worst local experience and then generalize it to the whole world. Everyone's going to be hot and it's going to be horrible uh, instead of looking at objectively. OK, if I got a couple degrees hotter what would that mean for human life and, and where are all the places that it would improve? Right. And that's, that's, uh, 
many of the alarmists are playing on people's fears. That's the case. And I always talk about, uh, uh, gee, you know, it got to be 102 in Chicago this, this uh, summer. Wasn't that terrible? I tell people, well, the state record high is, is 118, uh, 117, rather, for, for Illinois. And even the record high in Wisconsin, at Wisconsin Dells, uh, was set as 114. That was set back in the 1930s. So 102 is not out of the uh, normal variation of climate uh, temperatures. But even even this idea of a normal variation, I mean, we're we're looking at a relatively short time scale, even with with the the amount of time accurate thermometers have been around, and even, I mean, let's say it's hypothetically, let's say we've had a bunch of ice ages, which is I think really what what would be bad and really hard to cope with, given just it's you know it's if it's really cold, agriculture is really difficult. But let's say it was getting three degrees warmer i don't i don't see it seems like it's just an ideological prejudice that that would be the end of the world because the one thing we do know about temperature is that when we got out of an ice age life got a lot better so who's to say that it wouldn't be better to be a couple of degrees warmer i think it's it's an ideological prejudice rather than an objective examination right there's there's a one of the the uh the beliefs of climatism as i talk about in my first book is that um the recent climate is the best that, that there ever was or ever could be. So any change in any direction is going to be worse, and we're probably causing the change. It's a, it's a belief system rather than being scientifically based. Well, let's talk about that because this is my, my background's in philosophy, so I'm very interested in, in isms. So I, I found climatism an interesting term because it, it I thought in the first book in particular, you captured that it has this coherence to it, including things such as the climate, you know, the the climate not in, it's not even the climate changes, but if man influences the climate in, in any way, it must be bad. So it's got this anti-man prejudice. But I'm curious, it, it's not as if this climate mania arose in a vacuum. So what do you think it came from? What, what, and especially because you have a whole environmentalist movement that, that precedes it. Right. There, there are many drivers to climatism. First off, I should me- mention the way I've defined climatism is climatism is the belief that man-made greenhouse gases are destroying Earth's climate. And it really has become a belief system. It's become worldwide. Today, 191 of, of the 192 United Nations countries, uh, their leaders are trying to put policies in a place to stop the planet from warming up. It's in all of our universities. We've had... Uh, Presidents and chancellors of, uni- of uh, 700 universities in the United States uh, sign the President's Climate Challenge. Um, most of the Fortune 500 companies. So, so it's 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 become an ideology that's accepted everywhere, and um, it, it really has be- become a a uh, movement for global change, uh, global societal change, uh, much beyond just the science. And as you say, there are many, many motivations uh, behind climatism. Uh, the United Nations, for example, has some basic motivations. The United Nations would like to constrain the population of the Earth. Overpopulation has been a big driver for the ideology of climatism. They would like to redistrib- redistribute wealth between nations and level the, the incomes of nations. And so the United Nations every year proposes a, they've proposed a, uh, a climate fund of $100 billion that would go from the developing nations to, uh, from the developed nations to the, the underdeveloped nations to the developing nations. And um, the United Nations also wants to restrict consumption and what they call overconsumption and overproduction. And that's really aimed at uh, the United States. And uh, the idea that uh, we, can, we ought to control carbon emissions is a terrific method for, for achieving the United Nations objectives, uh, because if you're producing any energy, anything that we do in our housing or our cars or anything else uh, produces carbon dioxide. So let's constrict that, and then we, we will constrict overproduction and overconsumption. Um, and I could go on and on. There are many, many motivations by environmental groups, uh, nations in Europe, uh, universities, um, uh, industries, wind and solar, and, and others that are driving climatism. Just as, as one other thought, which I mentioned a bit on previous iterations of this or previous episodes of this program, 
it, this, it goes all the way back to primitive religions, this, this aversion to changing nature and a fear of new technology. And one, one instance in which you can see it is the fact that supposedly this movement is deathly concerned about climate change caused by CO2 emissions, and yet it is the number one opponent of nuclear power which is the only scalable form of power that could you know that that can actually replace the functionality of coal, oil, and natural gas. The other thing wind and solar are purely um, I mean those are purely ideological that 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 they think oh those are more natural use the wind and the sun. There's no economic reason in the world why you would try to use the wind of all things to generate huge amounts of consistent flowing power which is what a modern civilization needs. So it's, it's revealing. And if you ask them about nuclear, they don't really care. They they don't care about climate change in that moment. What they focus on is atomic change, that it's somehow wrong to create radiation. And they have all sorts of voodoo about that. And even if you ask them about hydroelectric dams, which can substitute in certain contexts as cheap, reliable power, they say, well, those are changing the earth because they're interfering with dams. So they're really, they're really against man-made change, not catastrophic climate change well i think i think you're right there there's a war on energy uh, by a, a large segment of the population and uh we have people like uh, paul ehrlich who wrote uh, the population bomb back in the 70s still a professor i think at stanford and he's been quoted as saying that uh, uh giving mankind a a uh, source of uh, uh, uh clean uh inexpensive power would be like giving an idiot child a machine gun and um you know, there are many, many people, and now we have people saying with, with the recent uh, uh, hydro-fracturing revolution that's producing natural gas and also increasing amounts of petroleum, many uh, environmental groups are saying that uh, the real disaster now is that we have too much oil and gas, uh, not that we have too little, because this is going to lead to global warming and man's impact on society and all those sort of things. So there are groups that have, uh, this is another group that is using climatism uh, to further their objectives. And that's the people that think uh, energy is bad. We ought to have a war on energy. And uh, what, what great way to, uh, to uh, reduce energy use than say, well, let's use ineffective wind and solar and let's reduce carbon uh, dioxide emissions. It really is an effective tool uh, for just another group that, that has an agenda. All right, so I want to. We never even finished that that McKibben paragraph, so I'm just going to go through these individually and just you know give a quick one or two minute comment on each. So he talks about okay, we've got this this planet, this ruined planet with melting poles. What right, and that's that's amazing. And and um, if you've been really following the press, you found that uh, this year we have another low in uh, Arctic ice, like we had in 2007. Um, and it's amazing. The climatists get so steamed up about Arctic ice. But as I always say in my presentations, that's one to two percent of, of the world's ice caps. One to two percent is Arctic ice. They never mention what's going on in Antarctica, which is the elephant in the room. Antarctic ice is 90 percent of Earth's ice caps. And that has been expanding for about 30 years, according to satellite data. And I, also, I always like to show a picture of the Amundsen-Scott station at the South Pole and tell my audiences that um, this is the third uh, station we've had at the South Pole. The U.S. has had a continuous presence since about the 1950s. And so I ask, well, what's happened? What, what, do you know what has happened to the other two stations? And usually nobody knows. But the answer is that they've been buried under snow and ice. Because every year we get the net gain of about eight inches of snowfall at the South Pole. And it just builds up every single year. And the current Amundsen-Scott station is built on stilts, and they can and they have a way of jacking up the building. They can jack it up every year on top of the ice and snow to prolong the life of the station. But this is this is the melting Antarctic ice cap. <laughs> uh, but right. There are examples like this about Arctic ice that are that are crazy things. So yeah, I just want to insert here that I think it's it's even if it was. Let's say that Antarctic ice was melting too. I've indicated why I don't think that would be the end of the world. But it's I think it's really unfair for anyone who's writing about these issues 
to just give some portion of the climate out of context and say, well, this proves that it's bad. So even if there were a real problem, you'd have to give global evidence and overall big picture evidence, not just say, hey, look, doesn't here's a picture of Arctic ice and here's less Arctic ice. Isn't that horrible? There's no context of what's happening globally and there's no context of what's happening to human life. Right. And as Dr. Fred Singer says, warming is evidence of uh, of, I'm sorry, melting ice is evidence of warming, but not what is causing the warming. And to say that a trace gas is doing it is really, really a jump. We ought to spend, we ought to spend a little time talking about the greenhouse effect and it's, it's, it's uh, man's contribution um, sometime during this hour, if you would. Okay, we'll, we'll get to it in about 10 minutes. We'll, we'll get okay. it toward the near the shower. So let's run through these dying forests. Dying forests. Well, actually, forests have been expanding. If you look at uh, NASA satellite data, uh, pictures from the, the late 70s until now, more of the Earth is covered in forests than it was in the past. Um, well, I guess I have to be a little bit careful because we have people cutting down, et cetera. That's not true for some nations. But if you look at the Northern Hemisphere and the developed nations, for example, forests are expanding due to increased level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Now, what about heaving corrosive sea? This is the acidification idea. <laughs> heaving corrosive seas. Yeah, it's really amazing to me. If you, if you look I, in, in, my, uh, in the Mad 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 world, I have a picture of a NASA curve, National Aeronautic and uh, Space Administration, that shows that seas have been rising for the last 20 years. They've risen about uh, 120 meters or 390 feet. And I would challenge any... Uh, climate alarmists to say, well, where has natural sea level rise ended and where did man-made cause sea level rise start? And in the last 150 years, seas have risen about seven to eight inches per century. Um, not the 20 feet that Al Gore is saying will happen or, or what Bill McKibben is saying happen will happen. So we have a natural sea level rise going on. Uh, cities and mankind needs to uh, uh, adapt to that, as we have always done. But there's nothing that says that uh, this sea level rise is abnormal. Uh, we've had bigger rises in the past. Or that man is causing it, or that a trace gas is causing the sea level rise. Now, what about, what about the idea of a corrosive sea, that, it's, that CO2 and the increased CO2 in the water is uh, making it more acidic and ruining everything? Oh, yes, ocean acidification. Uh, another thing that's hugely exagger exaggerated, uh, the oceans today are basic. If you look on the pH scale from 1 to 14, they're at about 8.1 or so. Uh, there has been, in the last few years, a very slight trend, um, and the climate models are forecasting a three-tenths change from, from, I think, about 8.1 to, to 7.8 by the year 2100, and all sorts of dire effects are, are claimed to occur. But actually recent studies, there was just a study in December that I mentioned in the book, uh, where scientists went to 15 locations across the globe, and they found that pH in these locations was varying as, as much as three-tenths of a pH per day, and more than that over weeks. We have very large variations. If you start at the equator near Hawaii and go up to the, the Arctic Circle, the pH uh, uh, changes very radically as you go. It changes with depth. It changes with location. Scientists really don't have a handle on average pH, uh, either even today in the ocean, as well as in historical periods. All of this is a computer model projection. This is a, a fear of man-made warming. There's really no evidence to show that uh, ocean acidification is a problem. All right. One more, and then we can we can get to greenhouse effect. He says, uh, for the 10,000 years that constitute human civilization, we've existed in the sweetest of sweet spots. Again, this is the idea that nature gives us all our well-being, and all human beings do it as destroy it, which is weird since we, nature didn't give us a life expectancy of 80. But anyway, the temperature has barely budged. Globally average, it's swung in the narrowest of ranges between 58 and 60 degrees. Well, that, that, that is correct. About a one or two degree swing since the last ice age. Was he saying prior to that? No, no, no. He's saying since no. the last, but, but the idea is we're going to uh, jump way out of that. 
Uh, well, you know, again, this is all a computer model projection. And um, again, we're talking about in Chicago, where I live, we have typically a 100 degree uh, swing Fahrenheit in temperature every year. It goes from about minus five in the coldest day in the winter to about 95 degrees, the warmest day in the summer, 100 degrees. And I have a graph in the book where I put that swing on the chart and then I put the, the amount that uh, global average temperatures have changed in the last 150 years. And it's contained in this very thin line uh, on the screen. It's very, very tiny relative to the normal temperature changes we get every year. And again, going back and looking at studies over the last 10,000 years, there have been warmer periods in the past not caused by man-made uh, emissions. All right. So greenha greenhouse effect. So let, let's talk about the greenhouse effect a little bit because I think this is the key point in the argument. Um, uh, we all agree that the Earth has been warming over the last uh, uh, 30 years or so. We all agree that carbon dioxide helps to cause the greenhouse effect and contributes to the effect. The real question is to what extent is man-made uh, emissions of greenhouse gas adding to the greenhouse effect and causing catastrophic global warming. So if you break down the greenhouse effect, the first thing that, uh, another question I ask my audience is, what is Earth's most abundant greenhouse gas? And some of them know and many don't, but the answer is water vapor. Somewhere between 75 to 90% of the greenhouse effect is caused by water vapor and clouds. Uh, that's by far the biggest greenhouse gas. Then if we look, if we're conservative and say 75%, if we look at the last quarter of Earth's greenhouse effect and say, well, okay, that's caused by carbon dioxide and methane, but how much of that is caused by man-made emissions? Because the oceans are uh, releasing carbon dioxide all the time and absorbing it. Uh, we have when plants die, they give off carbon dioxide. When they grow, they absorb carbon dioxide for photosynthesis. We have volcanoes putting gases into the atmosphere like carbon dioxide, both above the surface of the earth and about 10 times as many volcanoes underneath that are putting carbon dioxide into the oceans. So anyway, if you look at this last quarter and say, well, how much of the carbon dioxide that enters the atmosphere is from mankind? It turns out that about 96% of that is from natural emissions from the earth. So the total then of man's contribution to the greenhouse effect is only about one part in 100. One part in 100 of the greenhouse effect is caused by mankind. And that's too small to even measure in Earth's temperatures. It's, it's uh, uh, insignificant. So this idea, uh, and to give another, another way to look at it is to say, okay, carbon dioxide is a trace gas in the atmosphere. Only four of every 10,000 air molecules are carbon dioxide. And the amount that mankind could have added in all of human history is only a fraction of one of those 10,000 molecules. So the idea that man's tiny contribution to a trace gas, one part in 100 of the greenhouse effect, could be having all these, these uh, claimed effects is really incredible. Well, to play devil's advocate, I mean, there's such a thing as if imagine the the amount was very stable over history. So I, I forget what's what's the difference between pre-industrial levels and today. Yeah, they say about 285 parts per million was pre-industrial, and today it's about 393. If you, if you say it's 400 parts per million, that would be those four molecules in every 10,000. So if mankind added all of the CO2 from going from about 300 parts per million to 400 parts per million, that's one molecule. And even that's very questionable. If you look at the isotopes of carbon dioxide atoms in the atmosphere, you find that 93% of the carbon dioxide atoms are from natural causes. So man's contribution in, in actual atmospheric measurements, very, very tiny. But then what, what would explain, what would explain, so, so that, doesn't quite seem to square with the amount of the increase from say 280 to 390 in a in 150 years how it seems like we're putting a relative it seems like we'd be putting a third of the or a quarter of the co2 in the atmosphere well if we provided all of that that would be true but again that that plays on a belief the idea that uh, carbon dioxide was unchanging 
uh, prior to man's emissions, uh, which is really crazy as well, because we see that, uh, that there's evidence that it's been going up. It went uh, up and down after the ice ages. And by the way, there was a temperature rise first as we came out of the ice age and carbon dioxide increased later. Um, in addition, there's, there's stuff I discuss in the books about ice cores. Uh, there's some, uh, a lot of the data that is taken based on ice cores uh, has some faults. If you look at some other sources, you can see that carbon dioxide did vary in the atmosphere in the past. It was not stable for many thousands of years, as some have claimed. But in any case, it's a trace gas. Water vapor is the dominant greenhouse gas. And the idea that, that uh, man's tiny addition to the atmosphere is causing things uh, is just not correct. Well, I mean, in terms of, so water, it's a greenhouse gas, but it, does water have the same level of impact as CO2? Again, the study I'm, I'm quoting is uh, uh, from Gavin Schmidt, who did a computer simulation, and he came up with a breakdown that, that uh, 75% of the, the, uh, a greenhouse, the greenhouse effect is called, caused by water vapor. Oh, of the uh, effect. I got it. The water vapor. Now, the IPCC, uh, part of their very high, and all these climate models that the IPCC uses are based on the idea that an increase in carbon dioxide will trigger an increase in water vapor and, and amplify. It's called a positive feedback. And that is, is really not shown to be correct either. We do not have more water vapor in the atmosphere over the last 30 years, according to uh, data, again, from the U.S. government. Uh, and a lot of recent studies by uh, Spencer and Broswell, for example, by Dick Lindzen, uh, show that there are other factors going on, and so we're not increasing the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere. Um, so all of these are really based on a computer model projection. The assumption that carbon dioxide will trigger increased greenhouse effect from water vapor, um, not scientifically based uh, and not shown with empirical data. You mentioned the issue of of the relationship between CO two and temperatures. I've, I, and Al Gore has this very long graph of the relationship between CO two and temperature and how they correlate. But right. I've read in your book and in other places that CO two trails rather than leads uh, temperature, so that it appears that the temperature has some causal impact on CO two levels right. first and foremost, rather than the reverse. Could you comment on that? And then, if that's true, right. how is it that that seems like a game changer that I can't imagine. How does the other side ignore that? Well, that's, that's been accepted by the world now. When they look, at, you know, these are from ice core data. They go down in the ice and they look at isotopes of oxygen that are in the ice and they can look at past temperatures back five and 10,000 years. And they notice that um, as we came out of an, uh, a, uh, uh, when we came out of an ice age, uh, we'd have both a temperature rise and a carbon dioxide rise. So Mr. Gore said, aha, this has got to be caused by carbon dioxide. But when they looked closer at the data, they found that carbon dioxide rose on an average 600 years after the temperature rose. And in, in the, the physics of the universe, something that occurs after can't be causing the previous one. And what is really occurring is that as temperature rises, uh, the oceans warm. And according to Henry's law, which determines uh, uh, a law between a dissolved gas, carbon dioxide, and what's in the atmosphere, when the temperature rises, more carbon dioxide will escape and go into the atmosphere, and you'll get an atmospheric rise. So that's really sound evidence that temperature causes CO2 rise and not the other way around. So why is it just so? So why, you know, if you look at the CO2 data, then We've been out of, haven't we been coming out of the Little Ice Age for several hundred years, and yet the recent CO2 rise has been more dramatic than... Well, you have to be careful again, and um, I don't know if I want to get into the ice score data on this show, but there are some... Pro what you're, what, that uh, data comes from ice cores again, and, and this is a little different than the isotope measurements. They actually take a, um, they take a look at trapped air bubbles in the ice, and they, they drill an ice core, they take this drill and they go down um, uh, into the ice in Antarctica and they pull out these long cores, which are cylinders of ice. And then they analyze the oxygen atoms 
and they look at the air bubbles that are trapped in there and they analyze the air bubbles for the amount of carbon dioxide that are in there. There are many, many problems with that though. Uh, for example, um, air passes between um, ice for about uh, 75 meters down until you get down below 75 meters and the ice gets hard enough to trap the, the air. So you have this, this passage. If you look at other data um, from uh, uh, stomata of tree leaves that are buried over time and other things, you see much greater fluctuations in atmospheric carbon dioxide. And so the idea that it's been unchanging for thousands of years and recently ramped uh, really, in my mind, is is a uh, very, uh, very shaky. Yeah. The the point. So, do they actually do they actually analyze the at, for the seven percent thing that you said? Do they actually analyze the atmosphere right now and and be able to trace which kinds of CO two had to come from man and which didn't? About the isotopes. Yeah. yeah. Well, and 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 the climate alarmists use this as an alarm. They say um, if you look at the isotopes of carbon atoms. In, in the carbon dioxide, you take you take a uh, a sample of air and you run you do spectral analysis and you can see that um, uh, carbon normally has uh, 12 uh, protons and neutrons in its in its uh, I'm sorry it has six it has it has there's a carbon 12 and a carbon 13 and the carbon 13 has an additional neutron in the, in the uh, nucleus and uh, if you look at the CO2 that's emitted uh, by plants or oceans in normal in uh, uh, normal emission, that has more uh, that has a higher level of um, uh, I'm sorry the the uh, they compare the emissions from oceans and from plants natural CO2 versus emissions from power plants. And if you look at the emissions from power plants, that CO2 tends to have an extra a carbon atom in the nucleus. In other words, a carbon-13 versus a carbon-12. And then if you compare those isotopes, you can get an idea of how much CO2 in the atmosphere is uh, due to man and how much is due to natural effects. And the recent numbers show that still 93% of the CO2 molecules in the atmosphere appear to be natural emissions due to the, these isotopes. And only about 7% appear to be from man's industries, a very, very small amount. Got it. All right. Well, let's let's uh, get ready to wrap up. Make sure that you get time to, to plug the book. So this is the book, The Mad, Mad, uh, Mad World of Climatism. Uh, anything you want to share with our audience in conclusion, Steve? Well, uh, people need to educate themselves on this issue. And uh, what they're getting from the news media, their professors at universities, their pro political leaders is often incorrect. Uh, that man is the cause of climate change. Man is an insignificant part of climate change. Uh, I've discussed that in the book, uh, all my evidence, and also um, the climate mania that, that the... Uh, the world is in right now. Uh, and you can find it on Amazon. There's also some ebooks on for Apple, Amazon, and Barnes and Noble. And soon to be in bookstores. We're working on that with uh, Barnes and Noble right now. But I, I urge people to uh, to learn the real story about climate change. And where can they find you on the web? Uh, at climatism.net is my website. And then also at climatescienceamerica.org. All right. Sounds great. Thanks for being on the program. Steve, hang, hang on for a minute and we'll talk to you after the show. My pleasure, Alex. All right. Thanks again to Steve Gorham for being on the show. Uh, the point I want to wrap up with is the point that I started with, which is the need for looking at context in all of these issues. Part of what I wanted to focus on today is not simply that Steve and other people have different answers on the questions, but that they tend to be asking better questions and more global questions. We're talking about a global phenomenon. We're talking about making very important choices. And it's it's crucial to get the full context, to ask the right questions, and to know when we're being given just a very a sliver of the truth, uh, sometimes a distorted sliver, and ask 
to act on it. But if you ever get someone who shows you something such as, oh, there's a wildfire in Colorado, your AC bill is going up, it's really hot. Therefore, you need to shut down the thing that makes possible your air conditioner in the first place. That person is not being honest, even if his even if his conclusion is correct. Or that, that's not a, an honest method of argument. Even if the conclusion is correct, it's he's doing it a disservice because it's being done in a in a context dropping way in a non uh, objective way. Now, I don't think that the alarm over climate is is an issue. I think we should be alarmed over the destruction of energy that's being urged in the name of dealing with climate. But in any case, this entire debate needs objectivity, needs to look at the full context. And that's one thing I'm going to try to bring when I debate Bill McKibben on November 5th. So on that note, check out our new site, fossilfueldebate.com. That's fossilfueldebate.com and learn how to support it. As always, if you have any questions, comments, hate mail, or love mail for me, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Next week, we'll be back. Another great topic, another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein, and this has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.